This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Sam Holmes and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Katie Balls. We start today with the news that former Speaker of the House John Burkow has been banned seemingly permanently from the Parliament grounds. James, what's caused this? So this is an investigation into John Burkow and the way that he treated his staff. It has concluded that he was a serial bully and that the offences were so serious that if Burkow was still an MP, it would recommend that MPs voted on whether to expel him or not from the House of Commons. And I think what it reveals is that those staff who so bravely spoke up against John Burkow were right. And I think it should also raise questions of the MP, some of whom said this fairly explicitly, who basically said, well, we should keep John Burkow in place despite these concerns about whether he bullies the staff or not, because you know he's useful in terms of uh, giving Parliament more of a say over Brexit. I think should be having a kind of a, a long, hard think about the ethics of that decision-making. Burko has come out attacking the judgment, saying it's wrong, there's no contrition on display from him. But I think it is very hard to defend John Burko having read this report and its conclusions. Katie, has there been any response from the Conservative Party or the Parliament at all about because they've had some certain bullying controversies in the past are they being quiet or are they cheering this decision well I think the, there's little love lost between the current Tory party and John Burko so I think that if, if you look at what various figures said at the time I think that many will just accept this report's findings I think what's interesting is John Burko has tried to get ahead of this so I think it was a few months ago now he, there was a story in the Sunday Times saying you know this inquiry is going to be a stitch up and um, complaining about ways evidence have been gathered and um, when it comes to this report it says that the report upheld 21 out of 35 claims against him now if we think about Catherine Stone the Standards Commissioner and the own Patterson debacle there are lots of people at the time who question the process there I suspect that there will be different opinions on these findings but I think in terms of a live political issue probably the the one relates more to Labour given that we have a situation where Keir Starmer has welcomed John Burko into the fold and therefore what will Labour say about this report I think it is more of a non-issue for the Tory party because they have ended ties with John Burko whereas are you going to start seeing those who have supported him previously whereas as James says that is in uh, terms of the Brexit wars where you had a situation where people say, you know, keep them in place for this reason, or people who've welcomed him since. And therefore, I think the onus is now on Keir Starmer and Labour to see what they say. Are there any reports of actual individual events that he has been accused of? So it's 89 pages in full, if listeners um, fancy a, a lunch break spent on that. Um, but ultimately, Burko is described as a serial bully someone who repeatedly and extensively breached ethics rules and is also accused of being a serial liar. Now, there are various allegations of alleged exchanges he has, which are expletive-filled, and ultimately um, decided that he was talking down to colleagues. And then there are plenty of passages in there of what he's alleged to have said in certain exchanges, which are expletive-filled, so I'm not going to say them on this podcast. And later on, Vladimir Zelensky, the uh, Ukrainian president, is going to be addressing MPs. Now, James, we've seen him do this seemingly a lot the last few weeks. He addressed, I believe, a large delegation of the American Congress, again, asking for aid, asking for help, again, going on about the uh, no-fly zone. Do we expect the same thing when he talks to the MPs later today? 
I, I suspect that you will see him emphasising Ukraine's need for for more assistance, more aid, and for a no-fly zone. I still think a no-fly zone is is simply not going to happen for the for the reason that you know the US and UK governments and NATO, everyone says, which is a no-fly zone would require you to shoot Russian planes out of the sky, and that obviously could lead to a significant escalation in the war that nobody wants. I also think it is interesting that the Russians do not yet have aerial dominance. Uh, so I think there are military arguments about whether the effects of a no-fly zone would be entirely as intended. I, I think what you see Zelensky trying to do is further rally world opinion to Ukraine's side, to push for more sanctions and to push for more military aid. There is obviously also an important question here is how long the sanctions are kept in place. They are, as we will come on to discuss, you know, they are going to cause economic pain in the countries imposing those sanctions as well as Russia. And I think this helps solidify that. I also think Zelensky, as you saw in the in the video he released last night from shot in his you know, presidential office in Kiev, he is keen to show that, you know, he is still there. He is still fighting. Ukraine is still resisting. And one of the kind of calculations is how much longer, you know, the Ukrainians, I think, have held out longer than many people expected at the beginning of this conflict. And, you know, what does Russia do next? I think it does appear that Russia is moving to use more long-range munitions um, in an attempt to try and degrade Ukraine's ability to resist. But, you know, but there is also no doubt here that one of the challenges for Russia is, is that, you know, Trying to take cities is a bloody and difficult business and trying to establish control over them is difficult. I also think if the Russian forces were to do what they have done to Aleppo and Grozny, to Kiev and other Ukrainian cities, I think that would make it very hard for Russia to ever return to kind of a state of normality as long as Vladimir Putin is in charge in terms of its economic relations with the rest of the Western world. Uh, Katie, one thing that we heard from uh, the Polish are thinking about potentially sending fighter jets to Ukraine to help them almost clear the skies themselves. If Zelensky was to ask our MPs or our government for fighter jets, what do you think the response would be? Well, I think the issue in terms of the UK sending fighter jets is they're just not the ones that the Ukrainians are looking for. I think what's interesting on the Polish question, though, is the fact that you've already had Ben Wallace this morning on a media round, so the Defence Secretary saying that he would support such a measure. It will back Poland if it decides to send jets. And that obviously comes at a point where Russia has specifically, and Putin has specifically, in terms of his team, called out the UK for, you know, what they see as being one of the most critical voices when it comes to Russia. Now, I think it's something Boris Johnson probably quite likes because he wants to look as though he is, you know, one of the toughest on this. But I think the Zelensky address will be interesting because I think in recent days, and probably in the past week or so, I think Tory MPs are moderately happy with how Boris Johnson's handling this crisis. And, you know, pretty low bar if you think about Afghanistan, how chaotic that was. Also, if you just compare it to recent months. But I think one of the problems is, as obviously things get graver in Ukraine and things start to seem uh, perhaps more desperate is the West going to start to look impotent and right now the no-fly zone issue is being ruled out by I think all major leaders in the West it is seen very much as a no-go but you obviously have had very occasional Tory MPs such as Tobias Elwood come out I wonder if this Zelensky address is going to actually serve to put pressure or to start to stir a push amongst Tory MPs for the government to go further whether that is on the offer to refugees which I think right now being heavily criticized for um, if you look at the number of you know visas issued this, this was a uh, I think a rolling row on Monday where it just seems as though there is little joined up thinking when it comes to Pretty Patel, Boris Johnson, figures in government, Liz Truss at select committee saying 
Pretty Patel's in charge of this. Now that may be a factual statement, but I doubt Pretty Patel found it particularly helpful. And when it's saying, oh, it's wrong, it's 50 visas issued, perhaps it's more like 300. I mean, I think to lots of people, it still sounds pretty small fry. So pressure in terms of that. And then also, I think I would be very surprised at the position on a no-fly zone moves. But I think... One of the things lots of Tory MPs are talking about is airlifting humanitarian aid. Um, the fact that we've heard today that one uh, baby died of dehydration because no water can get to the areas. I think that could be a particularly live issue. So I imagine this lengthy address is going to start to stir some of the anguish forming at the moment that um, while um, there's been strong words from the UK government in terms of action, it's only going to get tougher to deliver on them. And trying to deliver that, James, uh, Moscow has said that it is open to opening up more humanitarian corridors in order to get this aid in. How much should we trust this? Uh, I think one should treat, to use an old Cold War phrase, trust but verify on these claims. So far, the Russian approach to humanitarian corridors has appeared similar to its approach to humanitarian corridors in Syria, where they are primarily used as a, as a PR device and to then justify further indiscriminate bombing of cities on the grounds that civilians have been offered a chance to, to leave. Uh, I would treat with deep scepticism uh, anything that Moscow says on this. And we've heard Biden's response about keeping up with the sanctions. Uh, did you have any opinion on Trump's idea of painting a Chinese flag on an American fighter jet and blowing up a Russian convoy that way? Uh, I, I think it is not, not a particularly serious suggestion. I mean, there is an interesting argument, which is, you know, should you attempt to do kind of reverse Kissinger and try and detach Russia from China? Uh, there's a very good piece by the American strategist uh, and academic Hal Brands in Foreign Affairs, arguing that, you know, that the, the Kissinger gambit only worked because you allowed Russian Chinese tensions to build up over a decade or so before you attempted it. I think that Russia and China right now, the logic of my enemy's enemy is my friend, is too, is too strong to drive them apart. And I think Xi will stick on that logic with Putin. I mean, there is an interesting question, though, which is there are definitely parts of the Russian establishment that worry about the idea of permanently becoming a junior partner to China. And one effect of economic sanctions will be to push Russia in that direction, it will become much more dependent on China for tech imports, because China is one of the few places that produces semiconductors that is not joining the, the sanctions on Russia. And as you see Europe, you know, yes, Europe isn't going to be able to do it this tomorrow, but Europe is going to steadily attempt to wean itself off Russian oil and gas. That will make China a much more important gas market for Russia. And as China becomes an ever more important gas market for Russia, and Russia has less options in terms of where else it sends that gas, I think you will see China believe that it can set the price itself, if you see what I mean, which will, again, you know, all of this, I mean, you can see tensions in the Russia-China relationship about the Arctic, about Central Asia, all coming down the spike in the next decade or so. But I think right now it is too soon to hope that you can drive a wedge between them. Because I think at the moment, the logical my enemy's enemy is my friend is too strong. Katie, just picking up on James's point there about us trying to wean ourselves off Russian oil and gas. Uh, on the Spectator Data Hub, if you have a look at the price of gas over the last couple of days, it has quite literally skyrocketed. Uh, what is the government doing to try and sort of put the fears of the British public to rest that their energy prices are about to go up maybe 50% or higher? I mean, to put the fears to rest, I think you'd have to stop it from happening. And I, I don't think that's going to happen. So, I mean, I think there is a question as to has Boris Johnson alerted to the public of how bad this is probably going to get? And I think there is a sense amongst his own ministers that he has not. And uh, there are promises that this is going to change very soon. And while there are flicks to it, I don't think it's the same as what 
Biden and Macron have done, as we've discussed previously on this podcast. There's talk of a new kind of energy point-by-point plan that's going to come out, um, which will go through this. But I do think this is one of the points which might expose one of Boris Johnson's weaknesses as a leader, which is he likes delivering good news. And therefore, I was really struck, I think it was last week, when um, Mark Harper, the Tory backbencher and chair in the COVID recovery group, ultimately, he said, you know, Prime Minister, this is going to cost the public. There's no way around this. There is one choice in terms of you have to go against Putin and you have to support Ukraine, but this will make the cost of living crisis worse. We need to let people know. And Boris Johnson responded by saying yes, but ultimately you know, the biggest uh, prize is, you know, no more Putin. And at that point, that will have economic benefits too. And I think the problem is that point is quite far away. And even if there are more subsidies, if you look at what the Treasury could bring in, there's no way getting around the point that energy prices are going to go up and it's going to be painful for lots and lots of people. Katie and James, thank you very much for coming. And to you at home, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we do have a Coffee House Shots live event coming up, the Spring Statement. And if you want to buy tickets for that, you can go to the website spectator.co.uk slash spring to buy tickets for this live event.